What does it mean to be in relationship with the wisdom of our ancestors? How might the spiritual teachings of the past be relevant to the way we think about some of the most pressing issues of today? My name is Michael Wexler, and with my father, Professor Philip Wexler, and mystical scholar Ellie Rubin, I am one of the authors of the book Social Vision, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's transformative paradigm for the world. In Social Vision, we sought to answer the previous questions by exploring the teachings of Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, and Jewish spirituality as articulated by Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the seventh in a line of what are known as Lubavitcher Rebbe's. In this second season of Social Vision Talks, we'll be unpacking some of the major themes of the book through the lens of the third Social Vision Conference held in October of 2021. The scholars, activists, and practitioners featured in this series are innovators in their fields, and it is my pleasure to present to you this groundbreaking conversation. In today's episode, we'll be hearing the teaching of Rabbi Ariel Evan Mays, Assistant Professor of Religion at Stanford University. Professor Mays is an expert in Hasidic philosophy with a special professional interest in themes related to neo-Hasidism and ecology. His lecture for Social Vision was entitled Interconnectedness with the Non-Human World and touched on key themes related to Hasidic philosophies environmental teachings. I want to start with a few basic reflections on Judaism as a way of thinking about obligation as opposed to a way uh, uh, a jurisprudence grounded in rights. This will take us to the works of Robert Cover. Next, I'm going to talk about what Kyle White has described as epistemologies of crisis versus epistemologies of coordination. And then we'll go into a series of Hasidic and Kabbalistic sources on the interconnectedness of human life within non-human world, moving as we close to the worlds of ethical and uh, moral responsibility that human beings hold for the non human world within the world within the uh, realms of Jewish thought and ending if we have time with a poem by one of my favorite Israeli poets um, Zelda so Judaism is you have several quotes here from the legal philosopher Robert cover Judaism is best understood as a system of jurisprudence and a culture rooted in the notion of obligations rather than rights American common law takes us, I would say, its central organizing principle, the idea of individual rights, whereas Judaism, as Cover describes it, is a system of thought, and indeed a legal system, which, and here I'm going to pick up the second of the quotes, um, one that prides itself on the theory of obligation. To be one who acts out of obligation is the closest thing there is to a Jewish definition of completion as a person within a community. What Robert Cover here is seeking to show is that Judaism as a jurisprudence founded in obligation rather than in rights, it sees the role of the individual as totally interconnected with that of the broader society. So in Cover's reimagining, the moment of revelation at Mount Sinai within the Jewish system is one that is intensely communal. 
the Torah talks about 600,000 individuals being there, those who are there and are present, but also future generations as well. It is, in a sense, a kind of covenantal community that is linked through duties, not about rights, but through what one is obligated to do toward the other and what is obligated, as I understand it, toward those who are a part of the non-human community as well. As uh, Cover describes, um, in the world of the mitzvot, of the Jewish commandments, the loaded evocative edge of the law is the assignment of responsibility. So what we have in Cover's estimation, and I think he's correct in this, is that the foundation stone of Jewish thought and of Jewish jurisprudence is obligation. It is reciprocity. It is kinship. And it is duty toward the other. Kyle White, who is a fantastic scholar of environmental studies from an indigenous perspective, now teaches at the University of Michigan. I'm a great fan of his work, um, has an essay that's just come out. He was written this in a number of places, but it was just published in the Rutledge Companion. I believe it's the Rutledge Handbook of Critical Indigenous Studies, where he draws a distinction between um, epistemologies of of crisis and epistemologies of coordination. Epistemologies of crisis are essentially a kind of paralysis that happens when you see that things are falling apart. They feel unprecedented. It feels like we have very little recourse. And what White argues is that in moments of crisis, as in our own interpersonal relationships, moments of crisis do not allow us to live into being our best selves. What we essentially do is double down on the things that we know. So whether that is a kind of extractive relationship to the physical world or the non-human world or a certain kind of colonialist um, capitalism or whatever it might be, an epistemology of crisis is about the preservation of the status quo and steamrolling across others in order to make that happen. What White then contrasts that with is an epistemology of coordination. And here you have a nice quote about how he understands that dynamic, that epistemologies of coordination refer to knowing the world that emphasize the importance of bonds, of kinship relationships, and things like this for being driving agents of change that allow us to reconceive of the future without falling prey to the sins of the past as manifest in the present. That's at least how I understand White's um, argument. So having spent a lot of time with Kyle White and having spent a lot of time with Robert Cover, I then go back to the sort of medieval and early modern Jewish sources and try and think, how can I think with these sources to build a vital language from within Judaism that will allow us to speak to these issues? Now, medieval Kabbalah has a lot of resources here. Uh, the great chain of being, at least in its kind of perennialist formulations, has been shown to be a very, uh, how shall we say, romanticized way of looking at the world and a very romanticized way of looking at human beings within it. But one of the things that I would say is a fundament of medieval Kabbalah is that everything matters. Both everything matters and also everything matters. Every element of the world, every created thing from within this planet, every life, every rock, every tree, every river. All of these things matter, and they matter in a kind of cosmic interconnected web, cosmically interconnected web, such that if you vibrate one part of this, it will have impacts all over. And if you destroy one part of it, it will have impacts all over. Um, another way that this is described in the Zohar, um, and it's one that's close to my own heart at the moment, we're raising monarchs. Um, in our backyard and, and we're raising them in our house. We brought in the, 
the uh, caterpillars so that they can make their chrysalises. And we're watching them now unfold, or sorry, fold themselves up and create this new way of life. Um, the Zohar describes the unfolding of being from God's divinity at, like a silkworm. God spun forth being and this garment or this cocoon or this chrysalis is both related to the divine and also somewhat distinct, but every thread is interconnected with all of the others, such that we live in a world of almost unfathomable interconnectedness. Another key, and this I think resonates with that one, is that the worlds above or below, or you can turn that on their side in the worlds within and without, according to medieval Kabbalah, are totally connected. And that the world above and the world within and the world down below mirror one another. And like two instruments that are attuned, they vibrate against one another, such that the, the world above and the world below are connected with one another on a fundamental plane. What's key for the Zohar is, and for the worlds of medieval Kabbalah, the concept of izun, balance. If something is thrown out of balance, everything falls apart. In this kind of, you might say, divine homeostasis, even on an ecological plane, is a critical moment for the Zohar. I'm interested in thinking through what an environmental ethic would look like if we take seriously Jewish mystical understandings of God's imminence. Here you have a very strong formulation. Everything is God. Alts is God, as they say in Yiddish. Everything is God. What happens if we see the world as an unfolding of the divine, of every species, of every human being, of every people or nation or ethnic group or community, of every rock, of every tree, as a unique and otherwise unknowable um, manifestation of the infinite divine self-becoming. Another key to this interconnectedness that you find in the worlds of medieval Kabbalah is the concept of reincarnation, which in many circles um, is not understood to be a traditionally Jewish belief. And in fact, it is sometimes described as a kind of heresy, even within Judaism. Turns out like many other things, it's actually all over um, Judaism. And one of the things that I like so much about this is that it severs a kind of impermeable um, membrane in between the human and non-human world. Because people, uh, according to medieval Kabbalah and in Hasidism also, come back as all sorts of things. You can come back as an animal, you can come back as a fruit, you can come back as a stone, you can come back as anything. And what you see is a kind of ecology of souls that unfold from this infinite divine being. And right now you're a person, but you could be something else. And so this notion of an un um, unfrangible distinction in between the human and the uh, human and the divine, first of all, but also the human and the animal, is something that simply does not bear um, bear up to scrutiny. If you take seriously this notion of a kind of metaphysics in which the souls are constantly reborn, and everything that you meet is both animal and human at the same time. Another, I would say, face in this multifaceted interconnected universe is the fact that according to um according to Hasidism everything has its own song we're surrounded by a universe that sings I almost fell out of my chair when I was reading Robin Wall Kimmer's book about braiding sweetgrass and she describes this moment in which she 
undergoes the experience of knowing the scientific names for things, but not knowing their songs. And she talks about the placement of songs within indigenous communities. And it turns out that Hasidism is a deep tradition of this, that the songs of human beings are woven from the songs that we experience in the world around us. That is to say that we take notes from here and from there, kind of experiential melodies that are then woven together into the arc of our life. And the songs of each individual's life are made up of those composite nodes brought together. We take a note from here, we take a note from there, and together we weave them into this kind of chained or unchained melody. And that's a fascinating way of looking at the world as reverberating with unique songs. Songs that have their own importance and songs that have their importance for us. And I'm going to move to the sort of final section of what I want to, to put on the table to begin our conversation, which is that within the worlds of Jewish thought, um, if we take seriously covers uh, emphasis on obligation, and I do, um, we should look to the worlds of Jewish thought that are not just about, okay, nice things about the interconnectedness of being, but what ought I to do with this, right? The ethics without an ought is toothless. And so let's put those agadic or a sacred mythological, what Cover calls the mythic center of Jewish culture on one side of the scale. And on the other, we put the legal traditions of Judaism, which attempt to put the rubber to the road and figure out how it is that we are meant to live our lives. Judaism ascribes a great degree of responsibility and obligation to each individual and the damage that we cause to the natural and the non-human world, whether or not we intend it or whether we, or whether we don't. You can see this right here um, in the two sources that I've given you, one from the Mishnah, one from a 13th century philosopher, 12th, 13th century philosopher. The first basically says, you are always responsible for all the damage that you caused. Don't tell me you didn't mean it. The second is, don't think that you exist in a world that was created for you. Beings exist for their own sakes. You have no right to stamp them out. You have no right to trod upon them. I often teach in these kind of contexts three different categories of rabbinic law that I think are particularly helpful. One is the ways in which the Talmudic rabbis build a kind of obligation or damage-causing agents that move from my domain to another domain that should have been foreseeable. They call this ash or fire. And they build a strong level of obligation for when I allow something to escape and then, then to go on and wreak, damage, wreak havoc upon others, I am obligated for the damage that I have caused, whether it's to the human or to the non-human. A second category is that of pits, stationary things that also cause damage. And in many respects, this also includes the worlds of water pollution. And here too, what we have within this is um, two facets that I think are particularly useful for our contemporary moment. One is that it understands cumulative damage, things that happen slowly and over time. This category of damage refers to things that happen one iota, one iota, one iota, one iota, then build up into, an, into something. And for those of us who struggle to conceive of and also to create legislation for things like what are often described as slow damage, things that happen over a long period of time and the culpability is very difficult, this way of thinking provides a way of moving forward for that. 
Um, another way that this is very helpful is that rabbinic discussions on this front actually address the question of multiple tort visas, um, an obligation that can be shared when it is um, when it, there are multiple parties that are contributing to a particularly injurious action. And the last thing that I find to be particularly meaningful here is that Judaism has this very close and careful calculus for the way in which it understands the way that industry, which is indispensable for human flourishing, um, needs to be weighed against the environmental and human costs. And it describes what we would think of in terms of zoning um, in very draconian terms. And it describes the way in which people need to move industries and place them in such a way that the human costs and the costs to the non-human world, and I think that's particularly key here, are absolutely defrayed. Now, we often think of torts uh, damage as the cost of doing business. Um, Judaism says no. The only reason we have tort law, says Maimonides, is to remind us that we shouldn't have damaged in the first place. And the ideal is not to cause harm, not to cause damage. And that's the fundament. There are many models that Judaism offers in the theological, mythic, and in the legal. We are God's partner in creation. We preserve the garden that God has created. We are God's planters. There's this beautiful passage in the Talmud that says, how do you be like God? Who knows what God is like? God visits the sick, so we visit the sick. God does this, so we do that. There's an amazing passage um, in another, in another um, Midrash that says, how do you act like God? You plant trees. God's a tree planter. God's a gardener. You go out into the world and you plant trees. And the last thing that I want to talk about is that one of the levels of obligation that we have to the non-human world in Judaism is what Levinas would have us call preontological. This is a striking Hasidic teaching. All creatures are created, says the Talmud, according to their own will. God asks, do you want to be created? And the species says, yes. God doesn't ask the species about the other species. However, when it comes to the creation of humanity, God asks each and every species, should I create this thing called the human being? Why, asks this Hasidic teacher? Because human beings can destroy it all. That part is already very interesting. The last line is what I find particularly compelling because as we know from the fact that we are here today, the species say yes. They give consent to the creation of human beings. Now, if that's true, if we take that seriously, it means that our very being here has written into it a debt of obligation to the non-human world that allowed us to be created and for which we bear infinite responsibility.